Californians can carry guns again after a new ruling in the case against the state's latest gun-free zones. Plus, former board member Rocky Marshall on his testimony this week in the NRA's corruption trial. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also a CNN contributor and the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter today if you want to keep up to date with the latest in Guns in America news. Uh, Of course, if you like the reporting that we do, you can buy a membership and support it even more, and as well as get access to hundreds of pieces of exclusive news and analysis you will not find anywhere else. This week on the show, we are talking about the National Rifle Association because there's been a lot of big news. Uh, we I mentioned some of it on the, the news update last week, but uh, one, Wayne LaPierre, the longtime head of the National Rifle Association, announced his resignation last week. And two, the trial for corruption allegations that stem in large part from his operation of the NRA uh, began this week. And so we actually have somebody who was a witness in the trial uh, and somebody who has experience overseeing the NRA and how it runs. Um, a former board member, Rocky Marshall, who's actually also now running again for the NRA board uh, on the show with us this week. Welcome to the show, Rocky. Thank you, Steve. I'm glad glad to be here. Yeah, glad to have you back. Uh, we, we had you on a, a little while ago to discuss right. a lot of these same uh, issues and actually... <laughs> Uh, that that uh, podcast interview is, has now become part of the record in this NRA case. It was it was uh, submitted as an exhibit, um, actually by the NRA itself uh, or the NRA's lawyers uh, in the case. So, <laughs> welcome back. Maybe we'll make some more news this time. Okay. Yeah, uh, but glad to be here, and I, I understand that. Yeah, the podcast didn't make it into the uh, the evidence uh, list, so it's interesting. Yeah, We'll get into why that is uh, in in a little bit, but let's start at the beginning here with uh, your testimony. You were the one of the first. I think you were the first. Uh, I, was, witness. I was the first witness. Yes. Yeah, in this case. So why don't you give us an overview of what happened when you were called to the stand? Yeah. So I thought it was odd that they chose me as the first witness because I was only on the board for a, roughly a year, ten months, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of people that have more history than I do with the board. Um, and I, and I think the, they chose me, the New York AG's office chose me to be the first witness because I wrote so much. I mean, I wrote so many emails to the board when I was on there. And then I've written a lot of, you know, analysis since I left the board to try to communicate to the members what's going on here. So since there was such a record of me writing, I think they decided that was a good comprehensive record of things that were occurring on the board. So that was the reason I went first, um, yeah. which was, was was okay with me. I, I'm glad I'm glad that's over, and I'm done with that that part. So it it, it definitely was an interesting process for sure. Yeah, I bet. Uh, and and just, we'll just give people a little bit of an overview for anyone who's uh, coming to this late. Uh, this whole situation with the NRA, uh, the accusation is that Wayne Lapierre and other executives at the NRA used the nonprofit's money to fund lavish personal expenses, things like private jet trips and luxury vacations and uh, fancy suits, uh, all sorts of stuff right. uh, of that nature. And uh, the, to the tune of uh, tens of millions of dollars, you know, I think it was 64 million was the, 
the claim by the attorney general, Letitia James, who is who is a Democrat that does have a, a history of, well, calling the NRA a domestic terrorist organization. So um, <laughs> right. you know, uh, there is that factor to consider uh, as well. But um, you, you, your role in all of this is that you were a board member for, for a while there. Um, and during your time on the board, you became concerned with these allegations, the more you looked at them and, uh, and then became a, a critic and opponent of, uh, LaPierre and, and his group of, of, uh, associates that control the NRA. Is that right? That's, that's correct. I mean, yeah, when I first got on the board, when I was, I was actually appointed, uh, because a board member had, had uh, resigned over the bankruptcy filing. So mm-hmm. I was appointed to replace that person. Um, when I got on the board, I start, I, I sort of believed what the NRA was saying, which was this is just a political attack by the New York AG's office, which makes total sense. I mean, I, and I there's some that. truth to that, right? And there's truth to that. So I said, okay, that's fine. Well, I can help them put together a, a pretty good defense as a business guy. I, I'm really good with analysis. And, um, but when I started digging into the records, it's very obvious that there's a lot of things wrong here in terms of the money that was being spent and how it was being spent. I think the number that I heard is, that they've quantified is around $110 million worth of misused, misused funds or inappropriate expenditures, those kinds of things. And in Texas, we would call that theft, but in the courtroom, they call it malfeasance and all these other things, but it was people were using money for the personal benefit, at least a hundred million. And that's not everything they couldn't, they didn't have time to track everything, but it's a lot of money for sure. Right. Cause the allegation is that this went on for decades, right? This wasn't just a short thing. Correct. Yeah. I mean, as near as I can tell, there was an SEC filing that happened in 1998, which was a complaint to the SEC regarding the NRA and, and some of its vendors, which included Ackerman McQueen. So it, the same kind of problems that we talk about today with the NRA also were being discussed in 1998. That's a long time, you know, of, of misuse of relationships, conflict of interest with, with vendors and those kinds of things. So it, it appears that it's been at least 25, 30 years worth of abuse for sure. Hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, what, what did they focus on in your, in your testimony and, you know, what did each side ask you about? Well, so the New York AG's office, which, um, the, the lawyers that work at the New York AG's office, I thought were really professional and really good. And, um, I didn't feel like that they had an axe to grind or they had a political agenda, unlike the Letitia James, who's the New York AG, uh, who obviously is very political. Um, these people work in the charities arm of the office. They're just doing their job and their job is to oversee charities in New York. And so I think they, that's what they're doing, regardless of the political influence around that. Um, and so um, they focused on the timeline of when I was on the board. What did I observe? How, you know, what did I do about that? You know, they were very curious as to how did I respond to that and what did I do and kind of carried me through that 10 months of time that I was there and all the actions that I took. And so I thought they were a very, very logical, very organized and very pointed discussion of my time on the board. The other lawyers in the case, keep in mind, there's four sets of lawyers here. NRA has lawyers. uh, Wayne LaPierre has lawyers. Woody Phillips has lawyers and John Frazier has lawyers. Yeah. So, so and Woody I, Phillips was the former treasurer and John Frazier was the current uh, counsel, general, general counsel secretary. Right. 
So there's four sets of attorneys in the trial and they all get to ask questions. So the New York AG's office would ask me questions and then each of those attorneys would also ask me, ask me questions. Um, the, the, do you mean discuss what the other attorneys talked about? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, what was the, now, you know, in theory here, the NRA is the, well, really the NRA members are, are the victims in this case. That's, that's Correct. the argument from the attorney general's office right. that you know, people like Wayne and Phillips and, and Frazier defrauded effectively the NRA members by diverting these funds to themselves. Uh, or or allowing it to happen uh, right. under their watch, uh, depending on the person involved, right? And and they right. there's already been a settlement in this case by uh, former uh, Wayne's former chief of staff Josh Powell, uh, who agreed to one never work on a nonprofit board ever or work as an officer of a nonprofit in New York ever again, and then two to actually pay the NRA back a hundred thousand dollars. Um, so in, in theory, uh, and that's, uh, those are some of the requests for LaPierre and, and Phillips and, 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 uh, and the lawyer Frazier as well. But in theory that, you know, that, that puts them on opposite sides of the NRA and its right. lawyers, right. but you know, in practice, how did that, how did that play out in court? So it's very obvious that the, the New York AG's office is pursuing the defendants which are, are, you know, Wayne LaPierre, um, Woody Phillips, and John Frazier, they're pursuing them for restitution to the NRA. So if they get restitution, if the court awards restitution, that money goes to the NRA, does not go to the New York AG's office in any form. So the NRA is also a victim at, you know, as it represents the members. So there does seem to be a separation here. The NRA, unlike in the bankruptcy trial where the separation was not as noticeable, it does seem like there's more separation between the NRA and Wayne LaPierre and the management team. I mean, there's a much more criticism is coming from the NRA lawyers than, than occurred before. And so there, there seems the NRA is starting to represent itself, which is what it should have been doing all along. But now it seems like they're starting to, to push back against the management team um, in the trial. Did you see that in in what the, how they approached your uh, questioning you? A little bit because the uh, the NRA lawyers were trying to ask me questions in order to to bolster what the NRA is about and also what they've done, as opposed to the other lawyers really were trying to attack me personally. You know, they were trying to discredit me. The NRA lawyers didn't try to discredit me. They were really trying to get me to support and, and make positive comments about the NRA and what they had done in order to, you know, supposedly clean up their organization. So it's a little bit different approach on how they how they questioned me for sure. Okay, interesting. Yeah, because um, uh, one of the, one of the things that is a common criticism from reformers, and I believe you've even made this in the past, is that the the lawyers who represent the NRA right now are from a firm called. Uh, Brewer Attorneys and Counselors, and that's run by right. by a man named Bill Brewer, who has been uh, very um, cozy with Wayne LaPierre, I guess would be one way of putting it. Uh, that He's had quite a lot of uh, his money sent his way by the NRA while Wayne LaPierre was in charge of it. Right. Um, right. And so uh, there's question by uh, critics of Wayne LaPierre, at least, that that also tend to be critics of Bill Brewer, 
Um, right. How do like how do you view that, and do you think it's changing? It, it, it seems to be changing to me. I mean, uh, the Bre the Brewer Law Firm I, they've they've built in already at least a hundred million dollars in legal fees, um, and so I'm highly critical of that law firm, as you know. And and I even tried to have the Brewer Law Firm brought in as an agenda item at one of the board meetings when I was on the board, and I couldn't get that done. But but um, it seemed to me the Brewer Law Firm was more interested in just billable hours throughout this whole process and, you know, supporting Wayne and, and trying to keep him, you know, intact as the as the uh, CEO of the NRA. Uh, but now it does seem some separation. There was a comment in the news today uh, that Bill Brewer made regarding the recent released audio tape of, of some of the talks that, that occurred. And Brewer kind of threw Wayne under the bus there a little bit in his comments. So I, it seems to me that there is some separation since Wayne has resigned last, you know, that Friday, uh, last Friday, I guess, um, that there's a little bit of separation there. And, and Wayne's the fall guy is what it kind of kind of looks like. That's interesting because, um, you know, just from my my watching it from the outside, uh, it, it, I haven't seen a lot of difference between how they treated um, Wayne during the bankruptcy and how they're treating him now in, in court there. You know, you, certainly that, that there's that comment that you alluded to, which, which attacked the people who were on that tape. Although Wayne wasn't actually on that tape that they talked about him, but it was Woody Phillips right. and Tyler Schlopp and some of these other, uh, and then executives right. at Ackerman McQueen taught basically <laughs> explaining right. on tape how the uh, whole scheme worked, which was right. that right. they would uh, give Ackerman McQueen was, was just the former media uh, firm that the NRA worked with for a long time is sort of at the center of this whole uh, this whole scheme, but that they right. would they would give company cards from Ackerman Queen to NRA uh, executives and have them spend on uh, you know the luxury items, the things that they did not want to become public necessarily, uh, right. and then Ackerman would just build that back without detailing what it was for. Right. Uh, and they, they laid this all out in in audio form. <laughs> like, right. No, uh, it's, and, it's, yeah. Mike Spees was the one who, who reported that over at the Trace. Um, we had him on the show a little while back for actually a totally different topic than the right. But but yeah, uh, it's pretty remarkable audio if you listen to it because it just kind of right. lays out everything. But right. um, but as far as Wayne and the the NRA goes in court, uh, you know, you did have them saying this, it's, it seems like their defense and, um, and, and, you know, and I want to get your perspective on this because uh, maybe you disagree with, with how, I'm, how I'm viewing this. Um, their defense in the bankruptcy, and it feels like they're repeating the same thing now, at least in the early days of this, this trial, was that, yes, Wayne LaPierre and indeed the NRA leadership over this period of time that's in uh, dispute made mistakes and some some people made more mistakes than others like they'll blame woody phillips who got fired and they'll blame uh josh powell and chris cox and and some of these other people who lost the internal fight basically at the nra uh, and they will blame wayne a little bit but i feel but then they'll say that uh, in fact they i believe they claim that the some of these other allegations that were brought by the attorney general against wayne were completely uh false I think they said at one point during um, during the arguments uh, on Tuesday, I believe, and and so you know they, they're willing to admit to a certain level of misconduct that occurred, but their argument is that that misconduct was dealt with 
and corrected. And so like, yes, Wayne made mistakes by taking excess benefits is what they, what they call it. Right. Um, but he paid back the excess benefits that he admitted taking to. Now they only admit that he took a tiny fraction of what he's accused of taking. Right. right? And, and it just feels like to me so far that I've seen that same argument play out again from the bankruptcy trial where it didn't work. Although that was kind of the bankruptcy trial didn't work because they weren't bankrupt is sort of at the end of the day. Right. But, right. uh, it seems like the same basic legal argument is playing out now. Uh, am I getting that wrong? I mean, you were in the court, uh, yeah. obviously, for your testimony. Uh, you weren't able to watch the the rest of the proceedings, but but you've obviously been following it all. Well, yeah, yeah. So that you know, you captured that pretty well. So they, what okay. they're basically saying is, yeah, there, there was there were some problems, but we we fixed all that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not true. I mean, that's not, it was not true at all. I mean. The excess benefits, they're still finding those. I mean, they ju- even this year, 2023, on their upcoming tax return, they're, they're going to report $300,000 of excess benefits to Wayne for years from like 2014 through 2019. They're still uncovering this. The total excess benefits that Wayne has supposedly paid back is $990,000. Well, the claim is millions of dollars. So there's a huge gap between what supposedly he paid back and what he the the embezzlement was or the misuse of funds, however you want to describe that, the theft was. Um, but the re, the reality is even paying back the funds, the fact that they took them to begin with, it's still theft. You know, I mean, you, they, they, they misused the money. They stole the money for their personal benefit and um, paying it back doesn't make that right. You don't get to clean the slate. Once you've robbed the bank, you're still a bank robber, no matter how, what happens after that. So, um, but yeah, that's the that's the image they're trying to present is, yeah, we had some problems, we fixed it, and everything's okay now. But everything's still not okay for sure. Yeah. So that it seems like you you get the general feeling of that's their their legal argument, but but you do feel like they've perhaps are now more willing to go a little bit harder against Wayne than they were during the bankruptcy, for instance. It's, it seems to me that there is. I mean, okay. it, it, I mean, I, it, and mostly what I, I say that I didn't see that in the courtroom as much. I saw it in the what the what the lawyers said in the press mm-hmm. and what their comments were. And it just seemed I mean, I didn't really I haven't really seen a lot of separation. But now there seems like there's more. The interrace seems to be trying to stand on the ground as, you know, Wayne's gone. He resigned. He's out. And we don't have that problem anymore. You know, and so, you know, I wish they had done that earlier, you know, like four or five years ago or 10 years ago, but they didn't. So here we are. But, um, you know, we'll see how the trial progresses. Yeah. I mean, do you think that was part of the, obviously Wayne in his announcement said that there were health reasons for his, him leaving. Um, now his announcement came literally the business day before the the trial began, but, um, you know, uh, do you question that timing now? They've also said, I guess, uh, they they have since revealed what the health concerns was, and apparently it's chronic Lyme disease uh, was the claim, according to the NRA's lawyers. And uh, they also, um, the story we just wrote, they, they also have claimed that Wayne will not receive any sort of uh, financial benefit from the NRA after he's resigned at the end of the month. Uh, that's another thing, too. His resignation doesn't actually go into effect until the end of the month. So it's, right. uh, you know, this is another sort of, one of the big problems with their legal argument has always been, well, you know, Wayne's at the center of all this stuff. 
and you're saying you've reformed and fixed things, but the guy who's at the core of it is still running everything. And it, that's he's still, still kind of true because yeah, he's, he's, no, he's still, still not employed. gone yet. Yeah, right. Yeah, no. um, but but true. as far as the, those two claims of um, that he won't receive any sort of financial benefit from the NRA, no contracting, consulting agreement or payment for his likeness or something like because that, that had been part of the bankruptcy trial was that there was this big contract that he mm-hmm. was proposed for him to get a lot of money after he left. And that was one of the big controversial things about Woody Phillips is after he was forced out, they signed him on to be this contractor. So he's still getting money from the NRA. Right. Right. Um, and, and so they're claiming that's not going to happen with Wayne. They're pretty definitive about it too, in the, in the letter. And then they also said that it really, well, it really is a, just a health concern. What, what is your, what do you make of all this? Well, yeah. Okay. You know, to, to, to resign on, on a Friday before the trial begins on Monday, you know, it looks really suspicious and you really didn't resign. You're, you're, you were correct. I mean, he's still employed. The resignation is not effective until like January 24th or sometime at the end of the month. So he's still, yeah, he's still employed there. If you were going to make the argument that we really have cleaned house, I mean, when I was on the the board back in 2021, I I called for Wayne's resignation while I was there. I wrote an email to the board saying, based on all the evidence, Wayne needs to be removed, you know, because then you can really tell the court, we cleaned house. We found fault with management. Management took monies. And we terminated their employment. And that would be a good, strong case in the bankruptcy trial or in the the trial with the New York AG. We have fixed these problems. But when the management is still in place, you you know, you you have no argument. There is no argument that you can say that we've still cleaned house. And yet the management, you know, one of the managers is still there, the CEO of all people. So um, that argument is pretty, pretty hollow. There's, There's nothing to that. And do you think that that has changed now with the resignation? Or do you think this, the fact that he's still in place through most of this trial is undercuts it or? I, I think it doesn't, at this point, it doesn't matter. I mean, mm-hmm. this is, I mean, if, like I said, if they had done this years ago, they might be in a better position to make that argument. You know, I mean, this all has just happened on Friday. It, it's not, you can't use the argument. There's too much data here to, to suggest that Wayne was still running it and still have a conflict of interest during all this period of time when they said, Oh, we've cleaned up everything. Uh, no, you haven't. I mean, you really haven't. So it's, that's not going to fly in court. I don't think. And what do you make of some of the maneuvering that's been going on internally? Uh, that seems perhaps connected to Wayne's resignation. Uh, for instance, Charles Cotton who's the current president of, of the NRA was his term as president was supposed to be up last year. Um, and Willis Lee was supposed to uh, move into that role. He was right. removed from his officer position and um, has since been very critical of what's going on at the NRA, including the legal strategy uh, and Bill Brewer. Right. Uh, and then Charles Cotton was the, the board amended the bylaws of the organization to allow him to serve for another term. Right. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, Andrew Arula Nundum, who was the longtime spokesperson and close confidant of, of Wayne LaPierre, was moved last month from spokesperson to head of general operations. Uh, they fired the old head to do this. And uh, of course, the person who succeeds the executive vice president, of, in other words, Wayne LaPierre, if he should retire, is the head of general operations. So, you know, obviously there was some 
internal maneuvering that went along with this whole uh, resignation uh, where, you know, then Charles Cotton has obviously also been very supportive of Wayne. He was, I believe he was the chairman of the committee that approved a lot of the expenses uh, after the fact. Yeah, the audit committee. Uh, the yes. audit committee, right. So right. He, he's a longtime Wayne ally as well. Um, you know, what, what do you make of, of all that? Well, okay, so this is pretty classic. From my experience of being on the board, the bylaws, they don't follow the bylaws. I mean, you, you're, that's the whole point of having them. It gives you a guideline that the board can use to, to have good governance of the board. They never did. I mean, I, I would bring up objections all the time in board meetings about things that they were doing that was totally in violation of the bylaws. They didn't care. They really didn't care. I mean, they would just get up and say, well, there's a lot of things in the bylaws. I mean, those are just suggestions, you know, and um, and then to, to just to manipulate them to keep Charles Cotton in place. Again, that's just another another abuse of the of the bylaws. I mean, one of the things in the bylaws is the, the board is totally responsible for any change in the charter. Of the, of the organization. For example, like if you were going to file bankruptcy, the board is responsible for that. They delegated that to the special litigation committee. You know, they, they delegated their authority away. You can't do that. You can't delegate a core authority away that because then you lose the oversight. So the bylaws, they don't follow. They didn't follow them while I was there. They obviously still not follow them because they, they manipulate them in whatever form they want. So um, it was also makes it look bad in, in the trial because you're not, you know, you have to follow the bylaws. They don't. And that's just more evidence that the, the New York AG's office will use in the trial. So it's, it's unfortunate that they still do this. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, so let's, let's get to some of those. Uh, uh, you, you said that the, the other lawyers for people like Wayne and, uh, and Woody Phillips were, were uh, questioning you as far as your credibility goes. Um, and this kind of dovetails with why the last podcast was um, apparently submitted as evidence. Uh, it appears to be connected to another filing from the, actually from the NRA's lawyers from, from the Brewer firm, as far as I understand it, uh, that deals with so-called whistleblowers, right? There's a whistleblower report and they have, uh, this is the NRA has kind of listed the people that are being brought up as whistleblowers, you among them. And then they have responses to each one as to why they were not either either weren't retaliated against or, you know, what happened with them wasn't uh, inappropriate. And so their response for for you is that um, uh, one of the things that happened after you became a, a vocal critic on the board is that you were not renominated by the board's nominating committee for right. another term. Right. right. And, That's right. and so that was used as an example of why. Uh, of retaliation against you, and, right. and they used our the, our previous podcast uh, interview uh, with you, where uh, to claim that you know that not, they didn't dispute that, that happened that you weren't renominated, but they said essentially that you could have run by petition and didn't try to do that, and that therefore, um, you know, what happened with you was not uh, a, a example of of retaliation or inappropriate conduct. Right. Yeah. So the, the tradition at the NRA was if once you've served on the board, it's it's automatically you, you, you're you given the opportunity to be renominated. It's, it's a courtesy. It's just a courtesy. It's not really written anywhere, but it's, it's a courtesy that they extend to current board members is, you know, to, to be uh, included on the ballot. They didn't give me that courtesy. 
And I even had some, there were some board members that spoke to the nominating committee about that on my behalf because that's the, the normal process. But that, that wasn't given in my, my case because I'd been a very harsh critic. And so they, they didn't want me back <laughs> to come on the board because my criticisms are going to continue. But they retaliated in lots of ways. I mean, one way, I never got a committee assignment. I requested to be on the finance committee, the audit committee, the, the, the bylaws committee. I didn't get any committee assignments. Everyone else got committee assignments and I didn't get any because they didn't. And the committees is where, where you can really make an impact and you can really help put together information that's presented to the entire board. I wasn't on any committee because they didn't want me on a committee. And that's what was pretty common with other board members. If they spoke out, their committee assignments were pulled and they were thrown off of committees because that way it keeps them quiet. And that's the way they work. They just want to, silence you, keep you quiet, and not not give you an opportunity to speak. And, and that's just one of the ways they do that. Okay. And, and so, so in other words, this was not the only what form of retaliation in your mind. And, uh, and also that it was done, this, the process of not renominating you uh, was intentionally because of your, your criticism. Correct. That's correct. Um, and, and so from here, where, where do you see this case going? What, what is your view of how things are likely to turn out? Well, okay. So this is a six week trial. I think on the New York AG's witness list, I think there's 35 witnesses. And I think there's uh, roughly that many on the, all the other attorneys list. So I think there's roughly 60 to 65 witnesses. I'll be surprised if they, if they're able to get through all of those, because that's a lot of people. And, and to do in six weeks. So, um, I mean, my, my testimony was an hour and a half, you know, so um, you, you can only do so many people every day. I don't, I don't know that there's room to do all that, but I think there, everybody that's, you know, that has witnessed some of the, 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 the things that went wrong at the NRA, they're going to have the same story. It may be a different story about their time on the NRA board. I mean, Oliver North's going to have a story, you know, Josh Powell is testifying. He's going to have a story. Uh, Judge Journey's testifying. He's going to have a story. They're all going to be, but but the theme of all those stories is going to be the same. The management at the NRA did a lot of things wrong. They they embezzled monies. They did wire fraud. Um, they spent you know NRA monies, NRA members' donations on personal things, flying family members around the world. So it, this is not going to end well for the NRA. The NRA doesn't have. There is no valid defense. I mean, you can't claim that, you know, all of these expenses or most of these expenses were really business related. They weren't. They obviously weren't. They've already admitted to the fact that they weren't. So you can't make that claim. Uh, and so the jury's going to see that. This is a jury trial. And I, I was testifying right in front of the jury. They're going to see the facts here. And it, it really stacks up hard against the NRA. Um, I can't say any way that they can prevail here. I mean, it seems to me that this trial is going to go one direction and it's not going to go well for the NRA. So um, at the end of this, we'll see what the judge decides he wants, what he wants to do. But uh, I think the defendants are, are not going to fare well in the trial. What do, you, what do you think the ultimate impact will be on the NRA? I mean, obviously they could bar, you know, Wayne and and Phillips and Frazier from working for the NRA or other nonprofits, they can order them to pay restitution uh, potentially into the millions, I suppose, to the NRA itself. Right. Uh, but is, uh, what else could happen? Uh, that well, 
Yeah, it appears to me that there's there's several things that can happen. You know, one one is I, I suspect. You know, let's assume that the, the, the defense lose the case, which it looks like. I can't imagine it going any other way. They will be removed. You know, because if if you if you're found guilty of embezzling funds, you're going to be removed by the court. So I I think that's a likely outcome. Uh, restitution is also a likely outcome. If they lose the case. I would I would suspect the New York AG's office is going to ask for restitution. Again, those monies go back to the NRA. They don't go to the New York AG's office. The next thing the court could do is appoint a monitor to come in and actually oversee the NRA and also identify any other problems that might exist. So that's a that's also an option um, that that could occur. Um, and we'll see what the judge says. If the judge doesn't appoint a monitor and all he does is remove the defendants and maybe has some restitution and all the other things remain in place, then I think the NRA hasn't changed all a lot um, other than, you know, Wayne will be gone. John Frazier will be gone, but everybody else is still there. So um, that would, you know, I think that the NRA is going to really struggle if there's not a fundamental change in the organization. I think, I think a monitor would do that. So we'll see how that turns out. Okay. Uh, yeah. Look, there's, Another aspect of all this, I, I, I'm hoping you can address a little bit, because one of the things that I've noticed reporting on this is, um, especially in the gun rights movement or the gun rights side of things, a lot of people have been pretty resigned to what's going on with the NRA. They don't. Uh, there's a common belief um, uh, that it just doesn't really matter that the NRA that this is all happening to it, that, you know, there's other groups out there that are, that are growing or that are, that, uh, that people like a lot, uh, that have accomplishments, um, and they'll just take up the slack for what's, what the NRA loses. Um, I, now it seems that you don't necessarily agree with this point of view because for one, uh, you are now are running for the NRA board. You got on the ballot through petition. You didn't do that right. after the, fir the first time you were taken off the ballot, but you are now. And right. that implies to me that you think there's still a uh, good reason to go and try and uh, change the course of, of the organization. Right. Yeah, it's hard. You know, it's hard to give up on the NRA because the NRA for 150 years has been a solid organization. Uh, it's just unfortunate that the management team got caught up in this corruption because it really taints the mission of the NRA. But, it, but there is no group like the NRA. I mean, I, as much as I like the other groups and, how, and I know what they're doing, they're not they don't have the scope. They don't have the size. They don't have they don't have the means to, to do the work that the NRA does. So I still think there's a glimmer of hope that if if the trial goes a certain way, maybe just maybe we can turn it around and get it back on track. And that's one of the reasons I decided to try to get back on the ballot, because maybe we can fix it. Uh, and there's others. I mean, Judge Judge Journey's on the ballot this year. Dennis Fusaro's on the ballot this year. And a guy that a lot of people know, Jeff Knox, is also on the ballot this year. And again, we kind of all talked and said, listen, let's try to get on the board. If we can't, in the, after the trial, maybe there's an opportunity we can, we can still save this organization. It may be too late. I mean, we'll see, but it's just hard to give up, you know, on something this important. All of us want to just keep fighting and, and try to get it back to the members' hands and doing the work and following the mission that it should. Uh, and we'll see if that works out. The other gun rights groups are doing great, and I I, I want to encourage them and, and and support them. But if we lose the NRA, we're, we've lost a lot in in our, in our 
in our world of, of gun rights for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think even now after having lost like a half of its revenue and more than a million members, it's still larger than all the other gun rights groups combined. Correct. Uh, at this That's point. Correct. And, and right. as you mentioned, it also does a lot of, a lot of the more successful gun rights groups right now, uh, which have grown as well uh, in the time that the NRA has, has declined. They, I don't think that they're, their growth has matched the decline of the NRA. Um, right. Another important thing for people to consider, but also they're mainly successful in legal fights, which is a valid, obviously, pursuit and very, uh, very um, impactful in, in in a lot of cases. But the NRA does that. Plus, I mean, the NRA did ruin, right? That was an NRA-backed right. case. Right. Um, but they uh, also do all sorts of other things that you don't see as much activity from the other from other groups on. Um, you know, things like, I mean, gun safety training for one, they're the, the right. still by far the largest uh, gun safety training organization in the country, um, probably the world, I would imagine. Mm. And then, um, you know, there's also the lobbying side of things, uh, both the federal and state level, uh, you know, grassroots activation, political spending on on ads and things like that. There, There's just so much that the NRA does um, that has had to cut back on a lot of that stuff as well. Uh, because right. of all this, but even still, uh, remains remains much larger than everyone else. Uh, of course, most of their resources right now are are going to this uh, sort of thing, fighting this case, and and right. um, yeah. So uh, I think that's uh, something a lot of people don't quite fully grasp is the the importance of all this as far as the gun well, rights movement is well, concerned. Well, plus, I think if we can if we can get rid of the 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 element of the NRA that has brought it to this point, and get a clean slate of management members and all those things, I think the members will come back. I mean, I, there's so many comments I've read on 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 things like your articles where people said, you know, not another dime until Wayne's gone, you know, and those kind of things. And so I think once we if we can clean it up, I think the members will recognize they've got a good organization. And they'll be wanting to donate again. I want to donate. I mean, I haven't donated since I've been on the board um, because they're going to spend the money in a way that doesn't support our mission. So but later on, hopefully we can get new management and new board if the board needs to be addressed because there's board members that are that are on there that should not be on there. Um, then I think we can save it. But this is a, this is a long road. This is a hard road for us to be on for sure. All right. Well, we'll have to have you back on perhaps again um, once the trial is wrapped up or, you know, maybe further developments down the line here, uh, because uh, I think your point of view is, is important to this discussion. I've also, in, of course, invited uh, the NRA's leadership to come on the show. Uh, Wayne or LaPierre, Andrew Rulanundum, Charles Cotton. I've reached out to, to the NRA and basically gave them an open invitation anytime they would like to come on and discuss these issues. They are welcome. We post these uh, episodes unedited. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to talk with them and get their side of, of the story as well. Uh, if they, if they choose to do that, but, uh, but yeah, we really appreciate you coming on and giving us your point of view on this. Um, if people want to follow what you're doing or, or you're, uh, want to, uh, follow your campaign to get back on the board, how can they do that? Okay, so what would be a huge help? So the the ballot uh, uh, for the, this next board will come out in the March edition of the American Rifleman. So if you're an NRA member and you're eligible to vote, you should receive a ballot in your magazine. 
If you would be willing to vote for myself, Rocky Marshall, Judge Phil Journey, Jeff Knox, and Dennis Fusaro, the four of us are working together to try to bring good governance back to the NRA. That's our only goal, is to try to save this organization. So if you will help us do that and tell your friends, tell 10 of your friends to please vote for us, we need your votes in order to, to try to make a difference here. So that would be a huge help. Um, you can, if you want to follow some of the things that I'm doing, you can, uh, you know, I do press releases from time to time and talk about various things. And you can Google my name, NRA and my name, and you'll see some things that I'm writing. But, um, but it, the main thing you can do right now is please vote and help us get on the board. And, and I think we can fix it. So that's what we're trying to do. All right. Appreciate it. We're going to head on over to our news update now. Okay. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined as always by Reload founder Stephen Gutowski. How are we doing this week, Steve? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, glad to have you back from vacation. I know, I know, you had some uh, some difficulty getting back, and it was actually wasn't it related to that plane that fell apart in midair? That is right. Yeah, my uh, the planned flight that I was supposed to take coming back from Florida was one of those Boeing Max nines, and the FAA grounded those right as I was actually on the plane. We were all seated and we had to deplane and so it ended up being like a 24-hour ordeal trying to find replacement flights and multiple connecting flights later i'm i'm finally back here in denver and back on the podcast oh my gosh um well that's gonna make a really good episode of air disasters my favorite show is air <laughs> disasters and one of the problems with that being your favorite show is that uh, anytime there's some sort of plane crash one of my first thoughts is uh this is gonna make a good episode <laughs> <laughs> it is this. So it's nice when there's a disaster and nobody gets hurt because then it's like, right. this is going to be really interesting, but also not sad like many of the other episodes. Uh, sure. So, but uh, yeah, glad to have you back. What what do we got in terms of uh, the news this week? Sure. Yeah. So one of the first links we've got in the newsletter comes to us from the Washington Post, and it's just about uh, Maryland's governor announcing that he plans to uh, push for a state-level Office of Gun Violence Prevention, um, taking a direct cue from the White House. Uh, they obviously, we've covered, they started the first uh, White House Office of Gun Violence Prevention and urged other states to do the same. Um, so at least one state so far since that happened is taking that lead to, to push forward at least. Yeah, uh, potentially something you'll see as a trend in, in the deeper blue states, I'd imagine, moving forward. I mean, a couple other ones already have this, right? I think the governor... <laughs> said it was the first one but it but it's not right yeah i was i was pretty confused by the governor's comments and a lot of reporting on this has claimed it's the first ever but colorado's had one since 2021 i think even before colorado new york and california had one uh, there's not that many out there granted but there are, there certainly are other states that have state level offices of, of gun violence prevention so yeah that's where the white house got the idea from if i'm remembering correctly yeah i think that's right <laughs> what are you gonna do oh well. <laughs> <Whatever>. <laughs> I don't, I also don't really know what these things do outside of like hold meetings, I guess. Yeah. But they collect data here in Colorado, like, you know, crime data and stuff. So it's almost like a replacement for your state level crime data. Um, but yeah, but yeah. Kind of rebranding re thing, I guess. I yeah. It's a coordination we'll thing. I guess the idea is they coordinate, which uh, could be useful, could be nothing. I don't know. It depends <laughs> on the people involved, I guess. Certainly. Um, and then, well, the other one of the other links we're going to talk about comes to us from Bearing Arms, uh, talking about just the uh, new Democratic majority in the Virginia State Legislature. They have both chambers now, and they are using their new majorities in both chambers to really push for 
like, you know, throwing the kitchen sink at the gun control issue, everything from assault weapon bans to new waiting period laws uh, appear to be on the table. So definitely big news. It's sort of a almost seems like a repeat of 2020 or 2019 when was the big push, at least in terms of the enthusiasm that seems to be behind the issue among the Democratic majority. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, we'll see where these things go because the Democrats have control, but they have like the thinnest majorities you could have. Uh, one vote uh, majority, and I think in the Senate. So, uh, yeah, and of course the governor is is still Glenn Youngkin, who's a Republican right. and very likely to uh, veto any of these bills that get through. I would I would guess we'll have to see. I mean, he hasn't had to deal with that to this point. Uh, you know, vetoing controversial gun bills, but. Um, I, I also, you know, you wonder under the dynamics of the majorities here, whether, uh, cause I'm in Virginia, obviously, uh, whether they're going to actually get through some of these things, lobby day for the, the local gun rights group, VCDL, uh, Virginia citizens defense league is coming up on uh, Monday. I think when this goes public, uh, you know, obviously our, our members will get this on Sunday, but the, the episode goes public on Monday, which I believe is the day that the VCDL is headed to lobby day. People probably remember that, even if you're not in Virginia, from uh, 2020, right before the pandemic, actually. Uh, that's when the big fight you're alluding to over the, the previous gun bills happened. Um, it probably helped kill the assault weapons ban here in Virginia, although a number of other policies did get through, like red flag laws and uh, local gun-free zone uh, autonomy, things things like that, a universal background check. Um, so, you know, there, there's um, some of the lower hanging fruit things of, of gun control policy have already been done in Virginia. So that you're getting, uh, if this legislature wants to pass anything, it's going to end up being one of the much more controversial uh, bills that more severely restrict gun ownership or gun carry. And so uh, we'll be, it'll be really interesting to see where that ends up, but we'll, we'll keep an eye on it for sure. Yeah, it will certainly be a story, story to follow. Um, and then the last link we're going to talk about comes to us from the Associated Press, uh, reporting on some uh, statements that the Attorney General Merrick Garland made about uh, the efficacy of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, and particularly the expanded, quote unquote, background checks for uh, 18 to 20 year olds, where they look into juvenile records. And Merrick Garland claims that that specific provision has stopped more than 500 gun sales from uh, going through that otherwise would have gone through under just the normal NIC system. So an interesting claim. Yeah. Yeah. And he did make that very specific claim that it wasn't just that they stopped 500 uh, sales to prohibited persons during, uh, you know, since the law has been put in place, he specifically said it was because of this new enhanced background check system, which, which is the if people recall from when this was passed, it was uh, a bit controversial because it was, it's, it's basically a de facto waiting period for anyone 18 to 20 years old because it gives the FBI three days just to initiate this, uh, this sort of intensive check of, uh, policy of, of like, uh, they reach out to the law enforcement agencies and wherever this check is happening and they look for records that aren't generally submitted to NICS. And he's claiming that that process has, uh, specifically has blocked these 500 sales. Now he gave, there were a couple of examples, right? That's right. Yeah. So some of the examples are interesting and you can see where it came in handy, right? They found, you know, juvenile violent crime conv convictions that were, would otherwise not be publicly available or not available to Nix. But some of the other ones, like the, the lead example that he gave is interesting because he said it stopped a sale to someone who was 
determined to be an unlawful user of a controlled substance, and it doesn't specify whether that means a conviction or court-ordered treatment or something like that. Um, and so we talked a little bit before we we started recording about, you know, that raises some questions potentially about, you know, a juvenile, you know, simple weed possession. Is that enough to block an 18 to 20 year old from ever being able to, you know, exercise the second, their second amendment rights? You know, I don't know. It's a, it's a live question now based on this law. Yeah. Well, you know, they, I think that one of the other examples was an involuntary commitment that they found, um, yeah. for, for juvenile, um, or somebody who was involuntarily committed while they were a juvenile. And obviously this check is happening as they're between the ages of 18 and 20. But, uh, you know, if you just think about the frequency of involuntary commitments versus drug related encounters with law enforcement or the justice system, uh, it seems much, it seems likely that there are many more of the drug related sort of uh, denials than the involuntary commitment ones, but they don't, uh, they don't break that down easily in these, in this release. So we don't know for sure, but uh, you know, interesting. Nonetheless, uh, I would expect that it would be be good to know even more about how these are coming at. Like what exactly do they mean by, you know, uh, addicted to like, what are, what is the standard they're using for that? Cause that could be, um, could be any number of things really, it seems. So, uh, you know, Hopefully we'll get more information on that uh, in in the moving forward here. But yeah, as of now, I would hearing what the AG said, I would expect that a lot of those 500 are some sort of drug related juvenile offense that the person was was charged with or treatment or something like that, uh, rather than involuntary commitments or, or things of that nature. Although obviously there will be some of those in the mix as well. Yeah, certainly. But uh, we'll we'll keep on top of that if, if any more information, detailed information becomes available. Um, and then heading into some of the stories we wrote this week, uh, we have one based on a letter that a group of attorney general from 20 Democratic controlled states sent to uh, the White House, specifically the Office of Gun Violence, Gun Violence Prevention, rather, that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah uh, the White House version. Asking them to look into the Lake City Army ammunition plant and launch an investigation, first of all, and two, uh, make sure that future contracts at that plant exclude and prohibit the future um, possibility of selling excess supply to the civilian market. Uh, so it's, you know, once again, gun control advocates are going back towards that plant. This has been a kind of a longstanding uh, target for them, uh, just because yeah. it comprises such a large supply of the civilian ammunition supplies, particularly for 5.56 ammo, which obviously listeners may know is what the AR-15 usually fires. So Right. Yeah. If you ever, if you see Winchester branded five, five, six, I believe that all comes from, from this particular plant. And yeah, we've, we've seen efforts before by the Biden administration to, or at least they've considered shutting off that production for civilian use, um, which, uh, which is exactly what these AGs are, are pushing. Now, one of the things I found interesting about this was not just not who was on the list, you know, there's 20. But as you know, there are more than 20 attorney generals who are attorneys general, by the way. It's, I guess that's the proper way to say it is attorneys general. Uh, I don't know why, but that's the proper <laughs> grammar. Um, uh, attorneys general who uh, there's more than 20 Democratic ones out there, uh, but only 20 signed on to this. 
uh, led by Letitia James, who we've uh, I spoke about earlier. She's the one who's uh, pursuing the civil case against the NRA and doing all kinds of other uh, high profile litigation with Donald Trump and people like that as well. But uh, and she went after Cuomo uh, back uh, when he was governor. Uh, too. So, you know, she's, she's uh, the center of a lot of this kind of stuff, but, um, but yeah, there's uh, I think there were four who didn't sign on from, you know, more swing States, basically Pennsylvania, Colorado, or at least not a, not that Colorado is necessarily a swing state anymore, but it's a little bit less aggressive on gun policy as some of the other democratic States ha have been. Um, Wisconsin was another one. And I think, what North North Carolina is that? I yes, North Carolina. Was, that's right. The fourth. So uh, that that's interesting to me, just who they were not able to get on board. But also, you know, you you have this uh, ongoing debate. First of all, this is I guess there's a couple points, right? Ammunition that comes out of this plant not any different from the five right. five six ammunition you could buy from any civilian manufacturer. Uh, and I mean, Winchester is a civilian manufacturer. They're just using. Uh, a military plant to, to make this ammunition. Um, so it's not different from what you could buy anyway. Um, and additionally, uh, it's not just a benefit to civilians, this kind of production, at least that's, that's the point that um, national shooting sports foundation made when they talked to you about this, right. When you've got comment from them, that's, that's right. The, yeah. the gun industry's trade group. What, yeah. what is, you know, it's not just a benefit to civilians, this, this sort of production, it also helps the military, right? That's right. Yeah. When I spoke with, with Mark Olivo over at the NSSF, he, he told me that actually it was the Department of Defense's idea in the first place to make this uh, excess supply available to civilians because with a steady stream of production, it keeps them ready to go at a moment's notice if the military ever needs them to ramp up production for, you know, a war or a big defense effort. Um, and plus that excess sales uh, provides more funding to the factory. So once again, they can buy more equipment or hire more people if they need to tool up at a moment's notice. And so it really wouldn't be a, a good situation for that factory if it was idle most of the time and all of a sudden a war kicked off and they suddenly needed to, to spike production for our troops and they had to scramble and find a bunch of employees that aren't trained and aren't experienced. Um, so it really is a benefit for both for civilians and for the military. Yeah, and that I guess that's the dispute from these attorney generals, attorneys general, sorry, that they <laughs> they think of it as the military subsidizing civilian ammo production when uh really it seems to be the other way around uh to a certain degree like this keeping this production for civilian use going is actually a benefit to the military because it allows them to to keep people on staff, to keep uh renewing facilities as they uh, go between you know, wars basically. And, um, and so it, it helps with, it's kind of a, a win-win sort of situation for That's right. civilian gun owners and the military is, is at least the idea that NSSF is, uh, is putting forth here. And, um, so yeah, shutting down production would harm certainly the civilian market because it provides, I think in the story, you said 30% of the, of supply. Right for the at least a five five six. Uh, That's right. Two yeah. two three is obviously another common, almost identical round uh, that's used with in ARs, but um, but you know that that would spike prices quite significantly. Like obviously the ammunition wouldn't go away. There's a lot of civilian makers who produce it too, but it would 
a reduced supply, as we've all seen over the last couple of years, uh, makes prices much higher. And, uh, you know, sure seems like maybe that's the real point of this. Now, uh, the AGs all say that it's because this ammo has shown up in mass shootings. Um, but, I mean, it's just this ammo is the most common, I think, single plant to, or this plant makes most of this ammo, at least the single most, not all of it, you know, not 50%, but it makes 30% of the market. So it's going to show up uh, in a lot of different places, it's like a Ford F-150 or a Honda Civic, probably used in a lot of crimes, but not because it's a particularly uh, designed to be useful in, in criminal activities, but just because they're, just, they're extremely common. Yeah, no, that's right. Not makes I, sense. Yeah, it's uh, it, like you said, it's just one of those things where it's so ubiquitous that uh, yeah, it'll wind up in in negative uses and positive uses. It's just yeah, so and it winds up in the vast majority of the time in perfectly <laughs> lawful uh, positive use. But uh, anyway, that's the core of the fight. As they say, this sometimes this ammunition uh, made by Lake City shows up at mass shootings, and um, so the military also they there's a whole. You know, the whole aspect of they don't think AR-15 should be legal, and so they don't want the yep. ammunition that they use to be legal either because they claim it's military grade and should only be used by the military. Um, and so, you know, it's uh, sort of the, the core of all these debates that you see around these sorts of firearms and, and ammunition. So uh, keep an eye on that. You know, they didn't go through with it last time, but uh, maybe in a second term, Biden pushes the envelope on this as well. Wouldn't be surprising to see him do that right he's he's been very aggressive at unilaterally trying to restrict firearms in the united states and this is an area where he probably has even more discretion than normal to do something like that it's just whether he's willing to sacrifice potentially military readiness to to accomplish that goal and he hasn't been to this point but perhaps his the calculation change for him changes for him with more pressure from uh, his his allies in his party or the gun control movement, we will have to we will have to see if it does if he does go through it. There'd be a major uh, major effect on the civilian ammunition market for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the last or one of the last stories that we covered this week uh, has to do with California. Uh, obviously, we covered quite extensively the legal fight over their Bruin response bill uh, to restrict gun carry. Essentially, made most of the state off limits to licensed gun carry. Uh, well, that law has officially been blocked once more because a uh, panel of appeals court judges uh, removed the administrative stay that was placed on it and allowed the injunction that was initially issued. Sorry, this gets kind of confusing because of all these yes. courts that are involved. <laughs> um, allowed that uh, initial injunction from the district court level to take effect. So that law is blocked as of this moment. Yes. So a, a, a district court judge, a federal judge found the law was unconstitutional, blocked enforcement of it. Uh, basically across the board, the the plaintiffs won on all their claims. And then uh, there was an administrative stay put in place that blocked, that sort of undid his entire ruling, which meant that the that the law could go into effect because the, the initial injunction happened before this law was set to go into effect. Then the stay happened right before the law was set to go into effect. So it went into effect for about a week. And then now the stay has been completely dissolved. So the old ruling is back into effect, which means that the law cannot go into effect. 
<laughs> so it gets, yeah. it gets kind of complicated to follow and there's a lot of whiplash here but uh, the bottom line is that um basically the restrictions that were in place before this law are still there but the new ones the vast majority of them are are not being enforced at this moment uh, now you know that could all change depending on how these appeals go and this is one of the sort of difficulties with preliminary injunctions is that if they get reversed on appeal and uh, you did the thing that was uh, illegal under the law and the, the injunction protecting you gets taken away, they could, in theory, come after you. But, um, uh, yeah, I think that's more of a risk with something like a hardware ban than a carry ban because you're just not going to it's not likely they're going to come back after people down you know, months and years from now and say, Oh, you carried in that, uh, that park during the injunction. So we're going to go after you for that because the injunction got taken away. But anyway, the bottom line getting, we, this was something we talked at length last week with uh, Robert Leiter from George Mason university. It's one of his points uh, that's that I think is interesting. But um, uh, yeah, in, in practice right now, the law enforcement officials in California are barred from enforcing these new gun-free zones. So um, carry is effectively back because the gun-free zones were so broad that they kind of made it impossible to carry in a practical sense. Um, anyway, that's <laughs> so a lot of whiplash going on in California, but right now things are back to the status quo of where they had been before this law was passed. Yep. That's right. Um, and then the last thing we kind of wanted to touch on was actually your members piece. So members can already re read this piece that we're talking about, but detailing some of the new recordings that came to light about the NRA and some of the pattern of misconduct that had been alleged for a long time to this point. And now we actually have some recordings of NRA officials talking about the misconduct and how they went about concealing this misconduct. If you want to just describe a little bit for, for listeners, what yeah, recording. we won't spend a lot of time on this because I think we talked a little bit about it with Rocky. And obviously, we talked a lot about just the NRA situation generally with Rocky. But uh, yeah, I do have a members piece that just goes over how this new audio that uh, that Mike Spees, who we had on the show not not too long ago, actually, but about an entirely different topic than the NRA. Uh, but he was the one who, who actually broke the first big story about the corruption there in 2019 and set off this whole internal fight and legal case that's gone on since that time. And now he's dropped this new audio that uh, it's, you know, the thing about this audio is it's not that this scheme wasn't known or like at least alleged before now, or even the very specific uh, details of this particular part of it, right? This MX uh, Ackerman McQueen, the old NRA media contractor, that the group had, towards the end of its relationship, they were spending $40 million a year on Ackerman. Um, you know, and, and they would do it in a way where there wasn't a lot of accountability or checking. You know, they, they basically just build what they build. And um, there was no itemizing of what they were, what the NRA was pay, supposed to be paying for. And so that's how a lot of this corruption was is alleged to have happened, right? The they would have Ackerman give, uh, and in this specific case, they literally had Ackerman give an Ackerman credit card, a Platinum American Express, to uh, the NRA's director of advancement, who was a former Ackerman uh, employee, uh, uh, Tyler Sh uh, Shrope is his name, 
and he's still there actually at the NRA, which is a potential problem for the NRA's legal case because a lot of the NRA's legal case relies on the idea that they've cleaned up, they've gotten rid of all the people who were causing problems. Um, and this makes it fairly clear that that's not true um, because Tyler's still there, even with Wayne gone now, technically, or he will be gone, uh, which is sort of part of that, that whole argument. Uh, they still have people like Tyler and John Frazier is still there. Some, some of these people who are at the, <coughs> the center of a lot of this stuff. And they kept on people like Woody Phillips, the former treasurer who was also involved in this audio tape. Uh, after he was forced out, he, he got a contracting job, but the NRA was still paying him money. Um, so, you know, a lot of their legal argument relies on the idea that they've self-corrected and they've gotten rid of people who are the gorily problems. But, um, you know, this audio and, and just a number of other things call that into question. But so the idea was Ackerman would give Tyler Schropp, the NRA advancement director, a Platinum American Express card that he could use to hide basically certain expenses that that Wayne LaPierre, um, according to Woody Phillips, the former treasurer, did not want to be public. Um, he didn't want people to know that he was taking uh, excuse me, private flights around. And, and that has since become one of the central pieces of this whole corruption scandal, these private flights for Wayne and his, even just for his family members when he's not even on the plane. Um, but uh, so Tyler was meant to take this card, use it for those sorts of expenses so that they'd be billed through Ackerman and then Ackerman would bill the NRA later on without itemizing why they were getting billed this money. And then he would also, but he, at the same time, he would run his regular expenses through the NRA through normal channels. And so you can kind of see <laughs> the problem with that or uh, the, how this scheme all worked. And, and th that's the thing about this audio tape is like, it's not that this wasn't known or alleged that this is how these things occurred. Even the Amex card has come up. Tyler Schropp has had to answer for it in depositions before. Um, but they're on tape explicitly saying, you know, we, we want to do this so that Wayne's expenses, these certain kinds of expenses spent, you know, luxury hotels like the Beverly Hills hotel and St. Regis and four seasons, uh, that they wouldn't show up on, uh, on NRA records and they wouldn't have to report them in the 990. So, um, I, you know, it's certainly Pretty remarkable when you get audio like that that comes out and they're just saying, yeah, we're going to the way we're going to hide these expenses is, is through this scheme here. And we're doing this because we don't want this stuff to be public. Yeah, but certainly fairly damning audio, but like, right. Yeah, I was going to say it's, it's not become uh, uncommon exactly to, to catch people <laughs> saying incriminating things on audio tape lately. But that is, like you said, that is the age we live in. Apparently. So anyway, you know, people can go and listen to that audio on uh, there's a, Mike published it on ProPublica and and the trace obviously left leaning outlets. But I mean, it's it's audio. You can listen to it for yourself. Yeah. It's not we link we link to it in the newsletter to, as well. So. Yeah. You don't have to rely on on Mike's, you know, whatever you think about Mike's fees or the trace. You don't have to rely on that. You can just listen to the audio itself. Uh, so uh, I recommend people do that. But uh, yeah, that that's. Uh, just, yeah, uh, again, this is, it perfectly encapsulates how this scheme worked. 
and, and why it was so problematic and why it was so easy under a system like that to uh, charge NRA members for things that they shouldn't have had to pay for, right? Like, I mean, that's just the bottom line. But uh, yeah, that's all we got for the news this week. I, I heard you went to uh, to like a farm show. What What is it? Yeah, so uh, listeners who maybe live out west or have traveled to Denver may be aware of the National Western Stock Show. It's a, a big Denver tradition uh, every year in January. It's I, I think it's still the largest ag and, and rodeo show in the U.S. at least. It might be even in North America. Um, but it's basically a two-week period uh, where there's this huge giant complex just outside of downtown where they, you know, they all sorts of things. There's ags, ag expos, and there's Don't livestock. They do like a like a parade of the cows too. Yeah, every year. That's that's the most famous thing people probably yeah. know is that to kick it off every year. They bring all the ranchers into this the heart of downtown Denver. It starts right in front of Union Station, and they bring hundreds of head of cattle, Longhorns, just march through the streets of downtown. They shut down traffic, and you just see all the cowboys riding around, and it's pretty cool. You know, up until five minutes ago, Denver was just a cow town, so it's just uh, <laughs> nice. cool to connect with 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 our roots, and it's a, it draws a big crowd every year. Um, so yeah. yeah, I went to the to the rodeo this week. That's fun. Saw some bull riders and some barrel racers. And did you do just, any bull riding? Do they let you just uh, go and do the? <laughs> yeah. What's the thing where they play poker? in the oh yeah cowboy poker yeah did you do that <laughs> yeah i don't think you could pay me to do that <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, you have a health insurance right through uh i, I do <laughs> i don't so. know if it's good enough for for the injuries that would result from that <laughs> yeah it seems pretty crazy um <clears throat> but yeah you also went to an abs game didn't you yeah, that's right. Yeah, I saw the Abs play. Abs won, so uh, it's a good week all in all. I got to see some bull riding. Got to see my hockey team win. Uh, pretty good week. Yeah, we had a good week as Flyers fans because now this is going to sound bad at first, right? Uh, Cutter Gauthier, who just won, like was one of the stars in the World Junior Championship yep. with the U.S., won gold. Um, he apparently we traded him away to the Anaheim Ducks. Uh, not even a real hockey team. Like they're they're <laughs> named after a Disney movie from the nineties. Uh, but we traded him away. Uh, we got a good return. You know, we got uh, Drysdale, who's this big defensive prospect. But uh, apparently, it was because he didn't want to play for the Flyers, and no one really knows why. They still haven't. He hasn't. He's said his people have said personal reasons, and just haven't explained it any at all. He's like, wouldn't talk to Flyers organization. And this all sounds like bad news, right? But it's actually good news because now Philly has a new villain forever uh, in this stupid kid. Uh, <laughs> soft, soft kid, soft as a pillow, could not play in Philly. And so now he's going to go to the great hockey town of Anaheim, California, <laughs> and spend his career there, I guess. Um, but yeah, so it got the whole city a little bit more interested in in the Flyers who have not been great. But the thing is like, the Flyers are on the upswing. They're having a pretty good season yeah. for the compared to where the, what they were expected to do. And they have a they have a, a world class coach in John Tortorella, who obviously is very prickly, and pe not everybody wants to play for him necessarily. But uh, but has also won the Stanley Cup and uh, is is very well respected around the league. And uh, so uh, they're on the upswing, and they have a big prospect. I think one of the top prospects of this generation coming over from Russia. Now that's also a sort of a risky thing because he's in Russia <laughs> right now, which is, uh, you know, not 
ideal, I think, when you're looking at prospects. But <clears throat> he's supposed to be great. So there's a you know th there's a court bit of talent on the team, and then they're supposed to be these big prospects. And uh, so I don't know why he just refused to play, but it pissed everybody off, especially including me. Very. I was gonna say off. the. The way he handled it was like tailor-made to fire up the city of Philadelphia, oh, yeah. which is which I would just loved watching from the sideline as a disinterested party. I thought it was great because it was just made oh, to fire up the Philadelphia fan base. Because he <laughs> said he when they drafted him, he's like, "Oh, I'm I'm built to be a flyer." Blah blah blah. Like like he initially was super excited about coming to Philly. At least that's what he was saying to everyone. And then suddenly, just he he didn't show up for like camp this year. And that was a little weird, I think, to people. And then, and then, yeah, the world champion, the, the front office actually handled it great because they managed to get a really good return for him. Uh, I mean, Drysdale was a cutter was a number five pick. Also, his name's not cutter. This is another thing. His name is William. Uh, so I, that's what people are going to chant at him when he comes to Philly. I can tell you that much. He wants to be called cutter, but his, his name is William. Um, so anyway, he's, uh, 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 yeah, he, he, uh, <clears throat> he just stopped talking to the organization, but they managed to get like a number. I think Drysdale was the number six pick in his draft and they got a second round, uh, what's probably going to be a very high second round pick because the ducks are going to be terrible this year. Most likely they already are very bad. So we'll probably get a really high second round pick. So not a bad for somebody who was never going to play with you. At least that's what he seemed to insist on. Uh, they got a decent return. In fact, Drysdale came in, got a big standing ovation just for being the guy that got traded for every, the guy everybody hates now. And he scored a point in his first game. So there that you was go. Nice. Um, but yeah, so, you know, we got a new villain, which, you know, Philly sports, that's about as important as having like that's a insane. new hero. You guys love uh, it's, a villain. <laughs> it's very uniting, I think, especially at a time where Philly sports are not, uh, you know, you've got the Eagles falling apart. Hopefully they can pull together somehow and win this wild card game against the Bucks, who are the team that made it into the playoffs because somebody had to make it in from the NFC South. <laughs> right. But, but at this point with the skid, who the heck knows if the Eagles can beat them. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so it's, it's nice to have. Uh, like collective thing to be upset about as a Philly fan, I'll tell you that much. Um, and then on the on a happier note, uh, I actually finally got my concealed carry permit in DC. Uh, yeah, well, right. uh, and I say finally, saga. right? Yeah, because it was a long saga, right? Because mainly because of their stupid policies on how you apply for the permit, right? Cause you have to go in person you have to make an appointment and all the appointments are three months out from when you uh, first look at the schedule. And there's no apparent reason for this. Cause when I actually went to apply, you just sit in like, it's like a DMV style government facility and you're just sitting there until they call your name and you hand them the documents. And, uh, and then I, you know, they took my picture and, uh, I, they would have fingerprinted me if they hadn't already done that the last time I applied for uh, a carry permit back under the May issue system and was denied um, because I mean, which I knew I was going to be denied because of the, the way the system worked. Um, Cause you, you, I didn't have a good reason that was back in the, the good reason clause days. But anyway, there's no real reason. It wasn't like I had a scheduled appointment. I just showed up and waited until 
they called my name and I handed in literally no reason to do that in person at all. Um, but I had to reschedule that twice because of, uh, well, one time was the, that escaped murderer was that happened the day I was supposed to go drop off my application. And anyway, so the, the, the application part, just turning in the application was what took so long. The actual processing time was pretty fast, to be honest. I think it was less than a month. Um, if I'm, if I'm remembering it correctly here, which is actually faster than processing time was in Virginia. So once they actually get your application in, they move through it pretty fast. Um, so kudos to the people processing the applications, but the system is clearly designed just to be as annoying and infuriating as, as possible and to delay the whole process out. You could, there's, there's almost no reason that you couldn't be able to walk in and out or honestly not even have to go down there and just apply online. Like a lot of other jurisdictions do that, but yeah, DC system, it took me what's uh, nine months, I guess, to get it because I mainly because I had to keep reschedule because I had to reschedule twice the appointment to drop off the application. And that's all I did there was drop it off. <laughs> so Anyway, I have it now. I still have to come up with, I don't know if, I'm not quite sure what I want to do yet with the actual carrying aspect of this because I registered my, so you have to register the gun that you're going to carry, even if you don't live in DC, right? I live in Virginia. Um, so right now I can only carry that gun that's registered. And uh, also they, they don't give you even, they don't even give you a card. They email you a PDF of your license and your registration, uh, which you're supposed to keep on you at all times. Um, so you have to print it out. Walk around with a sheet of paper and- <laughs> Well, I guess you keep it, you keep it on your phone, just yeah. as long as your phone doesn't die. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a little weird in that sense. They, they've abandoned all the paper part of the actual license, but they still make you go in for an appointment to drop off in paper your application. I don't know. It's very strange. Um, but yeah, so you can only carry the gun that you have registered. I have my X macro registered, which has 17 round magazine, but DC has a magazine ban where I could, I could carry two 10 round magazines, but I can't carry one 17 round magazine, right? Like that's the, the brilliance of these regulations. <laughs> but um, so I'll have to find, I'll either have to find a 10 round magazine for my X macro or some sort of solution like that, or I'll have to register a different gun to get maybe a, just a regular 365 with a 10 round or a shield or something like that. I don't know. Uh, I haven't, I haven't fully decided yet. I'm, I feel like I want to keep carrying the same gun that I would carry in Virginia. So that's the X macro, but then I'll have to get some DC magazines. I don't know if I'll, maybe I'll have to pin them or something, get them pinned. Uh, which is a huge waste of money because SIG mags are not cheap. I was just about to say, I'm sure SIG makes like a, a state compliant magazine for it, but then it's like you're paying all that money for a SIG magazine. I, that's the, I actually kind of wonder if they do. They might now that California is finally opening up their roster to newer guns, but I don't know if the X macro is on the California roster yet. Uh, that's that's going to be, I guess, my first thing to, to figure out and to look into and figure out how to buy a 10 round because that's it defeats it's funny because it goes against the purpose of the x macro altogether 
right. the whole idea of it is that that's why I bought it. So I could have 17 rounds in, in my carry gun magazine and something that's still more compact than basically every other gun that holds that, that many rounds. But so now I'm putting in a magazine, like I'm defeating the whole purpose of carrying, of having a gun like that, but I don't like, okay. But then do I want to switch to a gun that I'm going to have to switch guns when I go into DC or, you know, it's a whole annoying thing. It's still, so it's better. Yeah. I got legal protection if I go into DC with my gun, but not, but it's still a whole pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We'll see how it works out. But uh, yeah, I think that's that's all we got for this week. Um, I'll keep you guys updated on the whole DC carry ordeal because again, of course, they've got a million gun-free zones, and they kind of started this trend of trying to make everything in gun-free zones. They have roving gun-free zones that follow around uh, anyone under diplomatic protection has a gun-free zone that follows them wherever they go, uh, and so. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think they were the first ones to do the, uh, the protest gun free yeah. zone too. So if there's some sort of, if there's something that is permitted or ought to be permitted, so you're supposed to like, I guess you have to know what the permitting laws for public demonstrations are. So you can like look and try to determine, is that <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, these people should have a permit. I need to run away from them, I guess. Uh, you know, it's that kind of silliness. <laughs> Um, I do think you get a, they, they can only arrest you after they give you a warning to leave the area, I believe. So there's, there's some practical aspect to it, but it's just kind of comical you to get, think through some of this stuff. Get your ninja skills ready so you can dash at a moment's notice when you're carrying yeah. downtown. Plus you can't carry on the metro. So I can only carry if I drive into the city, which driving in the city these days in DC yeah, and their their carjacking rate is through the roof, and so is their murder rate. So, yeah, just not going there very often if I don't have to. <laughs> but uh, I can technically carry now, so that that's good. I'll have to figure figure out the details another time. But yeah, that's all we've got. Uh, if you like our reporting, if you like this show, please share it with anyone you think might be interested. Leave us a rating on whatever app you're listening to this on. Give us a thumbs up on YouTube. Um, leave us some comments, give us some feedback. We uh, listen. That's why we're doing this personal update sort of segment at the very end of the show. So people can get the news that they want and decide if they want to keep listening through this or not. That's uh, that was a, a, a direct response to people's comments and, and suggestions. So uh, we do listen, but yeah. If you like what we do and you want to read more, head over to reload.com, sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get one email a week. We don't flood your inbox. We keep it simple. We keep you up to date with the most important things going on, guns in the country. And of course, if you want more than that, if you want to dive in deeper, you can buy a membership. You'll get access to our member exclusive pieces. We have hundreds of them. They're mostly analysis. Sometimes we get extra bits from stories that are for members only. Of course, you get this podcast a day early and you get the opportunity to appear on the show as well in a member segment, which we'll have to do another one of those soon. We did one a couple weeks ago, but I always enjoy doing them. You also get to participate in our Q&As, which we'll have to do uh, another one of those soon too, maybe a beginning of the year Q&A sort of situation. Um, look for that. If you're a member, we'll, we'll send out an email when we, uh, when uh, the next time we, we're going to do one of those to get your questions. But 
Yeah, that's all we've got for this week. We will see you guys again real soon.